Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, what do we know about Monte Paschi? Well, we don't know much, so, so let's get a brief with Lisa Martinuzzi. She is from Bloomberg News in New York. We're still with Gary Schilling, a Gary Schilling president and founder, and Chris Whalen, a Curel Bond Rating Agency senior managing director. Lisa, what we know is that the ECB actually said, no, we won't extend your deadline. What we also know is from the uh, commissioner, uh, Mr. Dombrovsky, saying that Italy is in constructive contact with Monte Paschi. Constructive contact, what does that mean? They're looking at all options. That's right. I mean, basically, this is the last-ditch effort, last-ditch attempt to try and raise as much as money as you can privately, and then whatever the market doesn't soak up. I guess you know the plan is now, as we understand it, for the government to soak up any of the remaining um, funds that the bank has to raise. Um, so you're looking at a, a two-pronged approach. You try the market first, and then sort of a backstop from the government. So overall, it was a five billion plan. One billion they got in, in swaps. Right. They need. They're looking for four billion at the moment. How much do we think they can raise? Well, that's right. So what they're trying to do now is they're trying to get more from the debt for equity swap. They're going to make it easier for some consumer investors to take that up. Um, and that could be, from what we understand, you know, another billion, uh, up to two billion. And then you've got potentially an anchor investor that we're talking, that we're hearing talks about coming in, um, and that would leave, you know, the remainder for the market. But clearly, the more momentum is built to begin with, you know, kind of has a snowball effect. The more investors want to come in. Um, so it's about getting, you know, getting that momentum going. If the, if the government actually has to step in, does it mean they'll have to bail in certain creditors as per EU rules? Yes, the, the way we understand it would work would be through something called a precautionary recapitalization, which sees, yes, some investors having to, you know, share the burden of, of this cost and, and stakeholders too, because in, in many cases that would potentially see the stock going um, close to zero from what we understand. Aliza, I, I want to go over Unicredit. I get all the idea that it's focused on, Unip uh, on, on uh, Monte de Passi. Bring up the chart here right now, and it's JP Morgan with a diamond moonshot. Uh, here's BNP Paribas, here's Deutsche Bank, and Unicredit is dog of dogs. Aliza, is this going to be a normal roadshow for some 12 billion euros of cash call for Unicredit? I mean, did they go out and do a rubber chicken dinner in Milan and everybody shows up with their checkbook open? I don't buy it for a minute. Well, um a word of caution for us. We don't know exactly what the amount is going to be. Agreed. We're going to be told that tomorrow. Um, but there is, you know, there is a reorganization that will accompany the need for more funds. So you've seen the bank sell its businesses in Poland. It's setting its asset management business. Uh, we don't know yet what the bank is thinking about in the way of costs, in the way of reducing the cost burden. So I think, you know, that what will accompany the, need, you know, the fundraising will determine, you know, how successful the company is going to be in raising what you say. It, yeah. We are expecting to be a large amount. I mean, the company is worth around 15, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, Chris Whalen, help me here. Nothing here seems normal, and yet everybody's jawbone and normal. I don't buy it for a minute. 
No, and you, the thing you guys have to remember is debt for equity swaps don't exactly. raise new Let, cash. Let's stop. we got to stop this. Folks. This is critically important worldwide. It, the heart of the matter yeah. is you're taking senior better debt or junior subordinated right. debt, and you're saying, hi, equity, right? Well, you're window dressing a loss that's already occurred, but you're not raising new cash for the bank. At least in the case of Unicredit, they're selling assets, they're getting cash. Yeah, but with Monte de Pesce, you know, the, this whole notion of debt equity swaps, all the fuss that's made by the bureaucrats in Europe over these policies, so, they don't address the issue, which is that the enterprise needs new cash. What is a pro like you watch as we see a deeply troubled bank? or a too-big-to-fail Unicredit, what's a pro like you watch in all this jawboning that I don't buy for a minute? Well, we watch with trepidation because the, the accounting in Europe gives you no confidence. You don't know what's really happening. You know, you say what you want about the U.S., but our approach to both financial disclosure and bank solvency is why the U.S. system is so strong today. Uh, there's no comparison. You, you have a reasonable idea of what's going on inside most U.S. banks today, whereas in Europe, you just have really no idea. And, and as a, someone who has to offer an opinion, for example, on credit, this is very troubling because you don't have anything to anchor your opinions to. Right, Chris, I mean, let me remind you, you know, Freddie, Fannie, all of that stuff during the financial crisis. I mean, you guys had TARP. You guys went through a lot of pain in the financial crisis. You could argue, like a lot of investors are arguing, that Europe now has to take that. But, you know, the, the American banks were not immune to anything six years ago. Well, no, but in that case, you're absolutely right, Francine. It was off-balance sheet transactions that were hidden. That was our real Achilles heel in the U.S. But if you look at the way the U.S. industry cleaned up its own mess, which they did, and if you look generally at disclosure of losses, the way loans have to be written off in a certain period, that sort of thing, just from an analytical perspective, you have a much higher degree of comfort with a U.S. bank than you do with a bank under uh, the international accounting rules because they allow you to hide the problem. They allow you to pretend, for example, to accrue interest on a loan that's not making interest payments. And as an analyst, this is yeah. a problem. I, I mean, I do like reminding the Americans that, you know, they had Lehman Brothers, which almost... Look, off-balance sheet accounting was a, a, heart. a, a yeah, big but, problem. Yeah, but Francine, this is serious. This no, is... Wait, this is really What I'm not important. being Aliza. serious, Tom, what I'm... What I'm, ta I'm, what I'm talking about, right, is that there is, there is a difference between a lot of the way that the American investors look at the Italian banks and the way that the Italians view them. Okay. I'm not saying there's a bad or wrong way. I'm just saying that the Italian banks uh, are struggling also because of growth. So it's not only all about oh, the, no, the fact quite, that they're hiding right. stuff. Aliza, right? what is the knowledge of the non-performing loans at a good bank like Unicredit? Do you have a clue? what their NPLs are? Well, we do. We have their, you know, their, their accounting statements. I think what is, is fair to, to point out is that you know, the ECB as a regulator has come in only very recently, of course, in Europe. Um, and what it is doing slowly but surely, it is providing consistency because um, clearly each bank, each, you know, each country was looking after the, the supervision of its own banks slightly differently. And what the ECB is doing now is creating you know, a standard that is common to all the, the banks that are supervised in the region. And, and part of what we're seeing now, in particular in relation to the Italian bank loan cleanup, is a, a reflection of that. You know, the ECB is going in, is taking a closer look, and it's applying the same standards across the board. And hence, this is what is, is driving some of what we're seeing now.
Elisa, if you look at Montepaschi, uh, if the outcome were that the government had to step in, which I guess is more likely now than it was two weeks ago because of the referendum and mm -hmm. the troubles in Italy, is it, if it goes under, so I know I don't know if it, what the, what the uh, potential for that is, but is it systemic? Is it a systemic risk? Well, you have, you know, different views on that. But I think, yes, I think the bank is deemed sufficiently large to be systemic in the, in the type of, um, in, you know, the effect it could have on, on the broader confidence <coughs> in, in Italian banks, of course. Um, so while per se it could be contained if it has repercussions on how households view their savings, and other banks, for example, in that way it can be systemic. Yeah. But I think at the moment, you know, there is no, no question about the bank being viable. Um, oh, yeah. It is a question of, it, you know, raising a sufficient funds to clean up the balance sheet um, in right. a very short period of time. <clears throat> Gary Schilling here watching the bank debate go. This is removed from your bigger view, or maybe it isn't. Does the Italian dynamics, does that play into a Schilling euro view? Well, well, sure, because, you know, what, what, what's happened in, in uh, the last couple of decades, you've had a tremendous expansion of finance. If you look at the growth in the economy, and this is what I did my PhD dissertation on, is the debt versus the, versus the non-financial economy. Then you lay the financial on top of that, and you've, you've gotten tremendous amount of intermediation, it's called. In other words, you get layers and layers and layers, and that's what's really at risk here with banks. In other words, banks have gotten so far from, from spread lending, uh, the traditional banking, that a lot of this is really unwinding that, and we've done much more of a job in this country in doing that than they have in Europe. I mean, you, you look what happened coming out of the big bailout. Uh, <clears throat> Congress basically said, we want to bust you back to spread lending. Uh, we want to get rid of all these very profitable areas like prop trading and, and uh, derivative origination and trading, off-balance sheet activities. And, and uh, of course, the banks pushed back. Uh, but, but the point is that there's been a lot more progress on that in the U.S. than there has in Europe. Chris, is there any uh, doubt in your mind that actually the Italian government would never let Montepaschi down? We have a lot of investors coming on this program saying, like, guys, look, it's a safe bet if you raise into the capital because the Italian banking system and the government can't afford to let it go. Well, no, I think you're quite right, Francine, but this is the problem. If you go back to 2013, when a guy named Mario Draghi allowed the merger of uh, the Banco, of, uh, I believe it was um, Anton Veneta, that was an insolvent bank. It needed to be wound up, and so instead they merged it with Monte di Pasci. And now you have a larger bank that is clearly systemic, but it illustrates how the central bankers refuse, both in this country and in Europe, to deal with insolvency. Instead, they merge good banks with bad banks, and you end up with a zombie. Yeah. This has been fabulous. Chris Whalen, thank you so much. We'll continue. Gary Schilling as well. Elisa Martinuzzi, thank you so much with Bloomberg News in London. She has truly led our coverage on Italian banking uh, since the beginning of this uh, crisis. Oil has changed. We need perspective. Fadel Gate is with Opco Oppenheimer and Company, and he truly has decades of seeing surprises in carteled and non-carteled oil. Fadel, we could talk to you for two hours today, one hour on oil and one hour on the Secretary of State hyphen rumored. Let's first do the real business of oil. Is this sustainable 
or is it fragile? And if it's fragile, define that. Well, it is sustainable as long as they believe that the alternative can bring oil prices down by $20. So they have seen $20 oil, and obviously they didn't like it at all. So right now they are going to patch up whatever differences they have for them to survive. Most of these, uh, most of these uh, countries, Venezuela, for example, is technically bankrupt. So they just cannot afford, uh, you know, much lower oil prices for any uh, longer period of time. Right. Russia is in its back, running out of foreign currency in the middle of next year. Everybody should uh, know that. So they are willing to cut and lead the cut out of uh, OPEC because they desperately right. need more dollars. <clears throat> And, and, and David Gurr, that goes back to Shannon O'Neill in our interview on Friday. Look for that on iTunes podcast, our interview with the Council on Foreign Relations, Shannon O'Neill. Fascinating discussion about uh, Venezuela in particular here. Uh, Fadl, let me ask you about sort of what, what the, uh, the the major accomplishment was uh, this weekend. We, we had the OPEC meeting only, a, it seems like, a week, a week ago. Uh, and at that meeting, there was so much conversation about the role of, of non-OPEC producers. What does it say about the, the, the future of the oil market, the way that this deal was cut? Well, they will definitely know that, uh, you know, uh, the price war did not work. They didn't get rid of the frackers, the U.S. shale producers. Uh, they have to recognize, and I think most of them have already, that shale is here to stay. Shale is a technology, and technology and time are not on OPEC side. So oil prices will go higher, not because of OPEC does or does not do whatever they promise to do, but eventually supply and demand will balance. Why? Because the industry cut capital spending by 70%. The industry couldn't replace production at $100 oil, so obviously you're not going to be able to replace production at $40 oil or $50 oil. We are going to get to what I believe to be the new normal, which is $60. And shale is going to be the speed bump. If oil prices go significantly above 60, we are going to see a pullback, significant pullback in oil prices. And if oil prices go below 50, we are going to see the same thing. You're going to see more cost cuts, more cooperation by OPEC and non-OPEC, because they have to survive. And they cannot survive by oversupplying the market. From the, the commentary that we heard over the weekend uh, on the heels of this meeting, do, do you get the sense that uh, non-OPEC producers are cognizant of that, of the role that, uh, that shale is going to play here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, again, you know, you know, if they close their eyes, it doesn't mean that uh, the you know things are not happening. Uh, whether or not they like it or like, they have to live with it. They have to live with potential shale production in the U.S. between five and ten million barrels a day in the next five years. They have to live with that. So, if they want to go all out and repeat what they have done, I guarantee you that there will be regime changes in OPEC and non-OPEC countries if oil prices go back to $40. Yeah, I love the microeconomics, but where's the discipline? Is the, the not, I don't mean rule of law, rule of contract, but where's the, the almost the will, if you will, to finally be adults? Is it, do you observe it there, Fadl? Well, I've been following this industry for 35 years, and I can tell you the one that is consistent, that OPEC has never kept its word. So I am not sure this is going to be any different. They have seen, you know, economic collapse before, and they got together and, and, and you know, 
build themselves out. This time around, I do believe it is going to be much more dangerous because, as I said before, they have a new competitors that they are not going to be able to get rid of, and that is the shale producer because technology continues to improve and shale production, the break-even point continues to go down. So the industry, the U.S., oil industry is more resilient to lower oil prices than ever before. And that is something that OPEC finally recognized. They are not going to be pushed over anymore. Shale production is here to stay. Well, I go back into the archives to 2006, uh, when Rex Tillerson was named the new head of ExxonMobil. And one Fadelgeit, being quoted in the New York Times, says, it's the same old wine in a new bottle. You can't expect a company this size to change on a dime, but you might see changes in how it projects its image to the public to its clients. Fadelgate there speaking about uh, the change to a new chairman and executive, chairman and CEO, uh, Rex Tillerson at ExxonMobil. Fadelgate joins us now from Oppenheimer. Going back to 2006, looking at 2006 to now, how much did ExxonMobil change? How much has ExxonMobil changed under the leadership of Rex Tillerson? Uh, as I said before, it's, uh, you know, again, it's the playbook that hasn't changed in 50 years. Uh, to get to the top of Exxon, you have to be, uh, you, you have to prove over and over and over again that you are going to uh, just stay the course, and that's what happened. Uh, you know, the, you know, if you want stable company, predictable company, uh, no surprises, it's Exxon. Uh, Exxon sets the tone for the industry. Uh, but over the last 10 years, the stock really has not done well at all. Uh, Chevron has been a better stock than uh, Exxon stock. Uh, Exxon, uh, relatively speaking, uh, fell on uh, hard times. Uh, a few months ago, for the first yeah. time in decades, they lost the AAA credit rating. Right. Uh, seven or eight years ago, Exxon had $37 billion in cash. Today, they have $45 billion in debt. So obviously, uh, recent years have not been very kind to Exxon, and unfortunately, Rex Tillerson, you know, yeah. everything goes under his watch. So right. uh, that well, is well, as far as the scorecard. Fadl, I mean, I understand the major distinction of choosing a secretary of state is if you, you choose someone from Austin and the Longhorns or you choose someone <laughs> of the fighting Texas Aggies. I mean, I get that idea. But, but seriously— Rex Tillerson, I believe, puts his pants on one leg at a time out of Worcester Polytech, east of, uh, west of Boston, and out of Texas. I get that. From where you sit as an oil guy, does he have any attributes that lead to diplomacy? Mm. Well, he had to negotiate very long-term deals. We're not talking about six months or even six years. He is looking at something that not his successor or, you know, the, the fellow after his successor will find that the vault still has a lot of nuggets there to keep the company going for multi-decades. So this is basically passing the baton, if you will. You try to get the team better than when you inherited. That is how Exxon keeps the internal score. Who has done better in their 10-year tenure, whether it's Lee Raymond before Rick Stellerson and so forth? So uh, it's a company that doesn't uh, look at the clock every two minutes. They look at the clock every few years, not, 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 not in a short-term uh, uh, format. Um, 
Having said that, uh, it is obviously it's difficult or different uh, to deal with a head state or or, or a powerful uh, person in you know whether it's Russia or Saudi Arabia or elsewhere uh, as a, a deal maker, as a guy who is going to fund the project, uh, say tens of billions of dollars over multi-decade, than somebody who is going to negotiate a peace uh, treaty say, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, or, uh, you know, uh, stop the bloodshed in uh, Syria. These are things that, uh, you know, I am not sure, obviously, that not Rex Tillerson or anybody else has the answer for that. Very quickly here, by now we've all seen the photograph of, of Rex Tillerson with Vladimir Putin, and I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the, the relationship that he has had with, with Russia. He certainly pushed through some, some big projects for ExxonMobil as the head of that company. Yeah, correct. Uh, one thing that Exxon, uh, with Rex Tillerson at the helm, or even when Lee Raymond uh, before him, uh, they try to make sure that you separate uh, politics uh, from economics. We're here to do business. We don't. We are not here to change government. To 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 say we don't deal with you because uh, you are not elected. You are a dictator, whatever. So this mm-hmm. is the way. They Exxon went out of its way. Uh, 10 years ago or 12 years ago uh, to criticize the State Department interference yeah. in the takeover of Unical by right. uh, the Chinese oil company. Okay. And it's the only company that went out of the way to say that this is not right because okay. we cannot do that. we got to leave it there. Fidel Gate, timely. Thank you. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Now by Harm Bandholtz, he's no, unicorn. No, oh, sorry, no, Tom, no, Tom jumps we have, in. Tom. We have a Twitter update. Please. We just had three tweets Uh-oh. blasted out. And we'll report them and then, you know, move on as we do. Talking about Russia's CIA card and then another one talking about hackers. And then the other one uh-huh. is the F-35 program and cost is out of control. Billions of dollars can and will be saved on military and other purchases after January 20th. So... These are Mr. Trump's tweets. They've just come out here in the last number of minutes. And, and, and David, I, I point out that last week it was Air Force One. Yes. And this week it's the F-35. Next week will be the surveillance call. Oh, no. The, the F-35. <laughs> now, I, I think a lot of people are on board with those comments. Yeah, there oh. David, bring yeah, in Mr. Yeah, we Bandles. We have a president-elect here keenly interested in aviation, yes. it seems. Uh, anyway, <laughs> very good. Uh, those, of course, three tweets from the president-elect uh, at Real Donald Trump. I want to bring in Harm Banholtz now. He's chief U.S. economist uh, at Unicredit joining us now. And, and Harm, I mentioned the, the dearth of data today going into this meeting in Washington, D.C., but set the table for us there in the Eccles building. When you look at the data, when you look at the data, they'll be pouring over. Uh, how does it look? 
Um, I think it looks, well, certainly the Fed will, is going to raise rates. Uh, the, the, the data that we have received over the past several weeks came in, if anything, on the stronger side. I mean, if you look at your own uh, economic surprise index, it is up solidly in the positive territory, um, the highest in, in, I think, several quarters at least. Um, so so the, the, the macro environment looks all, all pretty good. And, I mean, we had, have heard Chair Yellen at her most recent congressional testimony where she basically adopted the language of the more hawkish members that any further delays in the rate hike causes may, may have some risks, including increased financial uh, instability and all that stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, this, this meeting is probably one of the least anticipated in terms of the policy outcome. Okay. Greg Villiers published this this morning, and he's not in the world of harm bundles. But harm, the Fed always has a moment to surprise can't they go Arthur Burns on us here, <laughs> three-eighths or half a point, just to get everybody right-sized quickly? Yeah, I think that's – I mean, as you said, it's probably a different world. Sometimes I feel like the, the, one of the main jobs of the economist is to keep markets a bit honest. I mean, we, we, even if you as an economist have a pretty pretty steady outlook, the market will fluctuate around you saying at one point you are too pessimistic and then two weeks later you are up too optimistic. I think that's what we are seeing with the market right now. For months, if not years, the market has been saying that – the economist rate outlook and the Fed rate outlook is too hawkish. Right. It's too hawkish. Now that we got Mr. Trump elected, and a month later, yeah. they turned from being way more dovish than the Fed and many economists to becoming more hawkish. So I think that is going too far. I think the big change, if you want, is that the Fed is not further lowering the dots. I think they keep them flat. Interesting. Uh, I think the Fed Interesting. Is doing 25 basis points, and they are not doing an awful lot with the outlook for now. I mean, they they don't know exactly what the stimulus will be. Yeah, the older years, uh, David Gura, and of course, Arthur Burns is 20, 30, 35 years ago. 2001, which, of course, was more than eventful with the huge uh, tragedy of September 11th. But before September 11th, they went 50 basis points, another 50, another 50, Mm -hmm. then 25, then 25, and then to the September 17th meeting, Following 9-11, they went another 50 basis points and on from there uh, with a good morning to the vice chairman at the time, uh, Roger uh, Roger, uh, Ferguson, who uh, drove that ship for Chairman Greenspan. Uh, Harm, uh, Tom mentions Roger Ferguson. There's been a lot of talk here about who who might fill the seats on the the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors and, and certainly chair and vice chair. Roger Ferguson's name has been mentioned before. What's your sense of the, the ideological shape of this Fed here in the next 18 to 24 months? Yeah, so I, I think um, the, the two open board seats, um, they might be filled with somebody who is more in the um, – from, from the bit more hawkish side. And, um, but uh, what makes it more tricky, it should be a person who is not that much in favor of regulation. So that's a bit tough, right? I mean, the, traditionally you have the, the more hawkish FOMC members are also those who favor more strict regulation. Now you would try have to look for somebody who may be a bit more hawkish on monetary policy, but less hawkish on regulation. I, I don't know any names. I mean, the speculation is out there. But that's, I think, the ideological background of, of at least one of the, of the incoming governors. I would not extrapolate this to the next Fed chair, because when Chair uh, Yellen's <clears throat> term is up at the beginning of 2018, right? and there's been so much talk about that, that President-elect uh, Trump will, will replace her with a hawkish 
policymaker. I'm not so sure about mm. it. I mean, I think there's been so much talk about Mr. Trump's changes in the rhetoric about the, the, <clears throat> the policy outlook he likes. Right. But I think now that he would benefit from low interest rates, he would go back to his, to his original mm. DNA as a developer, liking low interest rates. Ah. So, so again, I think the, the governors... He may follow through on, on the more Republican rhetoric, if you want, a bit more hawkish person. But when it comes to who's running the show, I don't think it will be a very hawkish new Fed chair. Yeah, Harm Bondol's with us, getting us to Wednesday. And, of course, our Fed coverage. Look for it on Wednesday. David, I believe Michael McKee will be ensconced Down in, in Washington. Washington. Scarlet Food driving our coverage. There's only Scarlet Food can. They've invited me to darken the door. <laughs> we'll have some cool charts, including the dots. Very important what Harm Bondo said there about the flattening of the a, dots. Well, and a lack a lack of adjustment mm -hmm. to the dots is really it. There's two moving parts to the dots: the yellow dots, and that red line down below has come up, up, up. The market vigilantes may be catching up with the Fed in dynamic. Harm Bondo's with us as we look at the American economy. Harm, with all the enthusiasm, the hockey stick move, and the five-year, five-year forward inflations. Uh, expectations, all that's great. Will they invest more? Do you see any indication yet of increased private investment? Um, there are, uh, I think we, a couple of years ago, we used the phrase green shoots. Um, maybe there are a few, if you look at durable goods orders. So it is, it has stabilized and is trending a little bit higher. Certainly there's not anything like a big rebound. I mean, given the restraints that we have seen over the past several quarters, you would think there's a little bit more pent-up demand in the system. But so far, there are no signs of this unfolding. Um, I think there's fundamentally, there is some, there is there is hope for a little bit of better uh, capex outlook. Um, most importantly, the, the the recession in the in the energy sector is over, and that has been an important contributor or reason for for the for the weakness in capex spending. Um, not only directly in, in in mining equipment, but also um, but also in, in transportation. You know, talking railroad cars and all that stuff. So I think that is that is improving. Plus, the earnings side has gotten a little bit better, which was an additional factor mm -hmm. for for the, for the weakness. So, so there is hope, but we do not yet see it that much in the data beyond um, a slight slight improvement in durable goods orders. How about the you know I I wonder about the timetable for how this could affect the economy. Looking at infrastructure, looking at tax changes to tax policy as well. What's your forecast for that? Um, I think the, the the most likely um, scenario is, is that that the that the tax cut will be will be approved somehow by the middle of next year, and then it starts to affect the economy most likely someone in the second half of 2017. Um, on the corporate side, I am. You know, the, the, in general, we have to acknowledge that the multiplier of corporate tax cuts is, is not very high, meaning that even if the government gives all the tax breaks to corporates, that usually does not translate into a huge boost in, in investment spending. Um, instead, companies are using part of that windfall you know, to, to bolster their balance sheets. So the big story is really the, co the tax cuts to individuals, which right. means that the U.S. economy becomes even more consumption dependent. Yeah, I think that's what we are going to see. Brilliant, brilliant. What, do you see a policy to steer tax cuts and also the tax repatriation to investment that will create jobs? No, there's no um, – I mean, there is, is a weak link between overall growth and investment spending, but not certainly not to that extent that you just suggested, you know, that, that there's a policy that steers all these tax cuts towards investment and creating more jobs. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, 
of course, if consumer spending goes up, there's more demand for domestically created services, but that's not really what the new administration is talking about, right? We want to have manufacturing jobs back. We want to produce stuff. And I have my doubts that this is happening. And if it's not happening, you know, that may further strengthen the talk about protectionism, because the historic relationship between domestic demand, U.S. domestic demand, and import growth is pretty significant, meaning if the administration is able to um, spur consumer spending and domestic demand in general, that, of course, benefits all the foreign countries who are producing stuff that is ultimately consumed in the U.S. And, if we, and that, that, of course, in turn, uh, offsets part of the GDP impact. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, up to, up to 30 or even 40 percent of the increase in domestic demand can be absorbed by higher imports. And if we see that, of course, then the whole topic about protectionism and all the negatives about globalization will be coming back maybe at the turn of next year, 2017, 2018, once that becomes obvious in the data. When you, when you look at uh, the, the X factor of protectionism, how, how big an X factor is that? In other words, we, we've heard the rhetoric about trade. We've seen the tweets about, uh, about China. When, when you forecast out how much of a destabilizing factor is, is uh, what could happen here with regard to trade policy? Yeah, I mean, huge. That is the biggest X factor and the biggest, the biggest negative uncertainty uh, of the new incoming administration. And I mean, if you look at financial markets, they completely brushed that aside so far. And there's, of course, hope that it just remains a risk to the baseline outlook. Um, it is really hard to say how this whole, the, the whole thing would, would uh, develop once we're seeing bigger steps towards protectionism, i.e. these 35 or 45 percent tariffs. And again, we, we hope it's just a risk factor. It's not part of our baseline. Um, but, you know, the Peterson Institute had a few months ago come out with the piece, what happens uh, to U.S. employment and GDP growth mm -hmm. if China and Mexico retaliate. So that is all ugly and will, will probably cause a recession mm -hmm. in the U.S. Right. What will you listen for Wednesday from Chair Yellen? Well, first of all, my, I do not expect any big changes. I think she gave us a blueprint in her most recent testimony. Um, I think she will give a nod to the uncertainty about the outlook, um, that there is probably a little bit better growth, um, and that they may have to, have to adjust the outlook once they, they know more. But let me come back to what I, what I said before. The, the big change really is that the Fed is not going to lower the dots. Um, since the 2017 dots have been introduced in late 2014, the Fed has lowered mm -hmm. them with every forecast update. The same is true for the 2018 dots. Since they have been introduced in, late, in September 2015, they have been lowered at, with every forecast update. So it's not trivial that the Fed at this mm -hmm. meeting is only keeping the dots unchanged. I know the market is yeah. now talking about an increase in the dots, but, but that is too much. Right. So, so the, yeah, yeah, so, we're yeah. going to have to leave it there. Harm Bondos, thank you yeah. so much. Thank I, you. I, thank I'm you. Just, the cross currents right now, David, are extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we could go every guest. It's like we could go on for an hour <laughs> just on the tangential stuff to whatever the theme is. Yeah. And the, the intersection May, of, of fiscal policy and yeah. monetary policy. and One of the most important conversations I had was at a cocktail party this week over a beverage of my choice. And the Washington lobbyist, John Tucker, said basically the phone hasn't stopped ringing. Is that right? Without exaggeration. He said November 9th, early in the morning, the phone started ringing. <laughs> and it just keeps on ringing. 
In the swamp. In the swamp. Yes, Barry Ritholtz writing about the swamp this morning. But it to me, it's 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 remarkable, David, the linkage of all this political talk into the markets. Yeah, and I think still being driven by the uncertainty about where all the political talk yeah. is is headed to. Uh, you know, despite the the naming of all these personnel, still, you know, who who knows what's going to anybody got a happen. guesstimate of the ten year yield? <laughs> six days out or six months out? Right in. <clears throat> no clue. Yeah, right in. No clue. Two point five zero percent. We got there quickly. Many people predicted that. Steve Major, I mentioned at HSBC, has been way out front with a identifier of 2.50%. We identify that we're thrilled you're with us on economics, finance, investment, international relations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.